uh, our preparation for Common Renewal started in June with our communion series back there in Second Chronicles 14 to 16. And tonight, I'm going to have two parts. Uh, first of all, I'm going to revisit uh, one of the sermons from that series uh, on what is covenant renewal and why renew our covenants. Just to help us uh, refresh our memories and refresh our thinking as well. It's not just a repeat of uh, the sermon. There's there's a chunk cut out and uh, the the top and tail is significantly different. So that'll be part one. And then time for questions uh, afterwards as well and discussion to work through some of these issues and questions. So let's begin with reading God's word and we'll turn again to Second Chronicles 15 and we'll read from verse 1. Second Chronicles 15. Is it somebody saying the connection's bad? Okay, good, good. That's all right. So Second Chronicles chapter 15. The Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded, And he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Hear me, Asa and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For a long time Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. But when in their distress they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought him, he was found by them. In those times there was no peace to him who went out or to him who came in, for great disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of the lands. They were broken in pieces, nation was crushed by nation and city by city, for God troubled them with every sort of distress. But you, take courage, do not let your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. As soon as Asa heard these words, the prophecy of Azariah, the son of Oded, he took courage and put away the detestable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin and from the cities that he had taken in the hill country of Ephraim. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was in, the, was in front of the vestibule of the house of the Lord. And he gathered all Judah and Benjamin and those from Ephraim, Manasseh, Simeon, who were residing with them. For great numbers had deserted to him from Israel when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. They were gathered at Jerusalem in the third month of the 15th year of the reign of Asa. They sacrificed to the Lord on that day from the spoil that they had brought, 700 oxen and 7,000 sheep. And they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, with all their heart and with all their soul. But that whoever would not seek the Lord, the God of Israel, should be put to death, whether young or old, man or woman, 
They swore an oath to the Lord with a loud voice and with shouting and with trumpets and with horns. And all Judah rejoiced over the oath, for they'd sworn with all their heart and had sought him with their whole desire. And he was found by them. And the Lord gave them rest all round. Well, let's pray together as we start. Heavenly Father, great God of the covenant, the God of steadfast, everlasting covenant love, the God who has entered into covenant with us in his great grace. We look to you in the name of Jesus Christ and we ask for help tonight. We pray for light and truth to be sent forth to lead us to you so that we might be faithful servants and that we might know the fullness of your blessing and that the world might know your blessing and particularly the places where you have placed us and called us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm just going to try and move the camera a little bit since you're all mostly on that side of the room and it's a bit of a barrier between us. Hopefully, I can see more of you. Um, uh, hopefully that uh, still acceptable. I think so, it looks. Other than the person in the frame, it looks like it's okay. Keep Second Chronicles 15 open as we will look at it together now. We are a stressed out, burnt out, depressed, anxious generation. We suffer from knots in the stomach, overwhelming despair, nervous, restless and tense. We've lived through events that have shaken the foundations from the financial crash 2018 to war in Europe 2022. And we've come via austerity, Brexit, uh, climate change and a pandemic. We have a news industry that turns the thermostat up. We have technology that means we're never disconnected from it. And we have a social media that amplifies and intensifies and immediatizes everything. And so anxiety has been called by some a second pandemic. I can give you endless statistics about mental health, anxiety, burnout, stress, depression, suicide, how these things have rocketed before, during and after the pandemic. Eating disorders, tics, withdrawal, self-harm, gender dysphoria. They used to be things that were relatively unusual and now they are increasingly common. But I don't think any of us really need to be convinced that uh, this is the case, that we're a stressed out generation. But just to give one example, a 2013 study in America found that millennials, that's me and Emmeline and maybe Linda, we're all in a sense millennials, we're all living in this day and age. But millennials, we have stress levels higher than the national average. 52% of them had been kept awake by worry in the past month and one in five were clinically depressed and needing medication. And that's nearly 10 years ago, that's before the pandemic lit a rocket under all those things. So we're a generation that are wound up, uptight, stressed out, burned out, depressed, anxious, medicated restless, peaceless, and joyless. Our generation needs 
someone who will come to them and tell them, come to me, all you who are heavy laden and who labour, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I'm gentle and lonely in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And of course you'll recognise those are the words of the Lord Jesus. And we have in the Lord Jesus such a person as we and our generation needs. He's the Lord who offers a light and easy burden and offers rest for heavy laden souls. So the theme for tonight is, it's on the screen behind you, <laughs> renewal, rest and rejoicing. And I believe that this is one of our greatest needs, especially post-COVID. I think it's also one of our world's greatest longings as well. It's what our world is searching for. They're looking for it in all the wrong places. And they are running away from the one who is the answer, but it's what they're looking for. So how do we find rest and rejoicing? And the answer is in Jesus Christ. But I want us to think, we'll be thinking tonight about how he sends these things to us. The means that he uses to give us joy and rest. And I think the means might be surprising to us. Rejoicing and rest could be described as the grace, the blessings that God gives us through Jesus Christ. So how does God send us these blessings? Uh, to use a, a picture, what's the pipe that brings these blessings from the reservoir that is Jesus Christ into our cups and makes our cups overflow in the words of Psalm 23? What are the means of grace, of God's grace coming to us? And the main ways, the word of God, baptism, the Lord's Prayer, no, sorry, the Lord's Supper and prayer. That's taken from Shorter Catechism, question 88, which we'll get to in due time. The means of grace. The main means of grace. But there are other ways too. There are subordinate or, or subcategories of those four main ones. Think of the ways that God has blessed you. He's used friendship and fellowship in the past, hasn't he? He's used the shepherding of church leadership. He's used to spiritual disciplines like fasting and serving one another and evangelizing. We can think of these things as the subordinate means of grace. They're, they're, they fit into some of those other categories, but they're, they're subordinate ways that God sends his blessings to us. And I want to make the case tonight that covenanting is another one of God's subordinate secondary subsidiary means of grace and sending his grace and blessing to us. It's quite a simple point and it's based on Second Chronicles fifteen twelve to 15. King Asa is leading the people in reformation and it climaxes in verses 12 to 15 with them renewing their covenant with God. And listen to the result of that covenant renewal. They entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, with all their heart and with all their soul. And all Judah rejoiced over the oath, for they'd sworn with all their heart and had sought him with their whole desire, and he was found by them. And the Lord gave them rest all round. So covenant renewal in Second Chronicles 15 leads to rest and it leads to rejoicing. Covenant renewal leads to rest and rejoicing. It's interesting, uh, a 
to give you a quote from Dr. Blair in his 1990 article that was shared a few weeks ago. As he was looking back on the historical covenant renewals, Dr. Blair said this, Always these covenant renewals brought great blessing to the church. And there's a man much more studied and knowledgeable about church history than I am. And not a man given to overstatement or rash statements. Always these covenant renewals brought great blessing to the church. Now, of course, they don't automatically bring God's blessing. But when God's people respond to him with a sincere heart, they become to us a means of God's grace. So tonight I want to take it as a given that you understand that covenant is at the heart of God's dealings with us. It's a bond that is both legal and loving, like a marriage. That's the closest human equivalent to God's covenant with us. Based on the framework of of mutual promises to each other, if you do, then I will do this. And it is how God relates to his people and it's how God rescues his people. Covenant shapes the whole story of the Bible from Adam right through to Revelation. It's interesting, just last week as I was looking at some commentaries on the seven letters in Revelation, there's, there's a shadow of, of a covenantal form in the letters and the way they're written. Covenant is there from beginning to end and it's driving and shaping the whole story of the Bible. God's covenant of grace, his undeserved love, his undeserved salvation, his undeserved bringing of us to him so that he would be our God and we would be his people. That's the, the bottom line, storyline of the Bible. I will be your God and you will be my people and he sends his son to make that happen for sinners. And so the covenant of grace, you see, it's just another way to describe the gospel, or to put it, I think, more accurately, the gospel is a covenant of grace. The gospel is a covenant gospel. So I'm going to take that as, as, as a foundation to build on tonight, that, we, that we, we get that, that that's the teaching of the Bible. And I want to focus tonight on God's covenant of grace requiring a covenant response. So again, behind you on the screen, covenant Received, that's our foundation, and then our covenant response to God's covenant of grace. So the language of covenant is if and then. If I do this, then you must do this. Covenant requires a response. God's covenant requires a response. And the response he's required to his covenant has always been the same from Adam to Moses to David to the New Testament Christians. We're to see our sin and rebellion. And we're to repent of that and to trust in him as our saviour. Believe in the saviour given. Repent and believe. And, and those two things, repentance and faith, two sides of the one response. We, we turn away from our sin and we turn towards obedience. We, we turn away from trusting in ourselves and we turn to trusting in God. And repentance and faith then flow out in obedience. Repentance, faith, and then obedience in that order. And it's always been the required response. Abraham was made righteous by faith. Genesis 15. Moses, the same. We could read the covenant that Moses is involved in and think it's about what he does. It's about works that they had to obey and then they'd be saved. 
But that would be ignoring the book of Leviticus and the many other passages where he's given a law of sacrifice to say, before you come to me, there has to be a payment for sin and you must repent of your sin and trust that I've provided the sacrifice. The Ten Commandments, what comes before the first commandment? Before obedience comes a declaration of God's salvation. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. Salvation and then obedience. David, the saved, repentant adulterer. So saved by grace, saved through repentance and faith. This covenant response is the gospel response. We're called to repent and believe and then to walk in God's ways. But what we also see in the Bible is that God's people go further. God's people often respond to God's covenant by entering into a covenant with him. Their response to God's covenant is a covenant response. A covenant response to God's covenant of grace. And this was happening in Second Chronicles 15. So the word of God comes through a prophet in the first seven verses. And King Asa responds to the word of God with reform. Verse 8. He deals with the sin of idolatry. And he restores the worship of God. Repents of sin. And commits to trust and obedience. And we might think that's enough. He's responding to God's covenant the way that God requires. We might think that's enough. But he goes further. Verse 12. And they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord of their God with all their heart and with all their soul. And whoever would not seek the Lord should be put to death, whether young or old, man or woman. So publicly, corporately, together, they enter into a covenant commitment. They respond to God's covenant with covenant. And this is the, the crucial thing for us to grasp. Here's the king and the people of God responding to God's salvation, God's grace, by making a solemn commitment together to him. There's two aspects to it, and I trust you're well familiar with this by now. They confess their sins, and then they commit to walk according to the word of God in faith and obedience. This is covenant response to God's covenant, and it, 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 it echoes, or it shadows, or it builds upon our initial response to God's covenant We hear the call of the gospel, we repent of sin, and we believe. And here they enter into a covenant, repenting of sin, confessing sin, and committing to faithful obedience. And we see it happen four times in Chronicles, and the details and the circumstances vary, but these two aspects are always there. There's a realisation of sin and a confessing and a turning away from sin, and then there's a commitment publicly and corporately to follow their God. They respond to God's covenant with covenant. Confession of sin, commitment to faithful obedience. That's the pattern that we see in Chronicles. And and three things to see about this covenant response, this covenant commitment that they make. The first is this. It's a commitment to do something that they are already bound to do. A commitment to do what they are already required to do. Obedience to God's law is required anyway. That's required 
anyway. But they make voluntarily an extra commitment to him. Not a commitment to anything extra, but an extra commitment to what they're already required and bound to do. So it's a commitment to do what we're already committed to do. Like a bride and groom. They are obligated by God's law to love one another. And the husband to lead in love and the wife to submit. That's required by God's law. But when they take their marriage vows, they enter into an extra commitment to what they're already required to do by God's law. Not commitment to anything extra, but extra commitment. So that's the first characteristic of this. The second is to see that it is public. It's public. We have, as Christians, made a commitment to God in our heart. Christianity is first and foremost a heart thing. It's an internal reality. It's not about going through rites and rituals and external actions. But when we respond in covenant and covenanting together, we're making public that commitment. It's a little bit like our vows of church membership. When you take your vows of church membership, you are already a Christian. You don't become a Christian at that point. But the vows are a public expression of your inner faith and a public commitment to your Lord. So it's a public response to God's grace. Visible in that sense. Tangible. And the third thing is to see that it's a corporate commitment or a collective commitment. God's people do it together as a body. It's a movement of the people. Not, it's not an individualistic thing. Our membership vows, in a sense, are an individualistic thing. We, we take them publicly and we, we back, we're, we're, we're making vows to the church, but it's a personal, individual commitment. Covenanting is, is a corporate commitment. It's not saying, I will do this. It's saying, we will do this together. It's a corporate, collective response to God's covenant. So when we talk about covenant renewal, it's a covenant response, confessing our sins, committing to obedience, a covenant response to God's saving covenant with us. So that brings us to the third thing, covenant renewed. So if we were to read all of Second Chronicles, we would see God's people renewing this covenant commitment with God across the generations. So Asa, chapter 15, that's around 900 BC. Josiah, in chapters 23 and 24, that's around 800 BC. Hezekiah, chapter 29, that's around 700 BC. And then Josiah, chapter 34, around 600 BC. And there's a pattern of decline in the people's religion and faithfulness to God. Reformation, confession of sin, commitment to God, recommitment to God, covenant renewal. The people renew their covenant with God. But it's not just a Chronicles thing. It's right throughout the Bible. And when you look for it, you see it everywhere. So Moses and the Israelites at Mount Sinai, God appears to them and declares his covenant of grace to them, the sacrifices and the law. And what do they do in chapter 24? They respond in covenant. They enter into covenant together. Deuteronomy, 
The whole book of Deuteronomy is a book of covenant renewal. The people stand on the borders of the promised land and they renew their covenant commitment to God. The law is read a second time. That's what Deuteronomy means. And they respond as a new generation to what God has done to them and the obligations that their God imposes upon them. Then Joshua, chapter 8, having conquered the first phase, the, the southern portion of the promised land, they renew their covenant together. At the end of Joshua's life, Chapter 24, at the end of his rule, they renew their covenant together. Nehemiah, he would stand that they, we've got chronicles all happening in between then. And then uh, Nehemiah, after all that, Nehemiah 9, the people have returned from exile. Jerusalem, the temple's being rebuilt and they renew their commitment to God in covenant. Here's a pattern of God's people right throughout history, the history in the Bible. And just as a little aside here. Uh, you see as you look at these instances a variety of circumstances that that lead to it. Sometimes it's the fruit, it's the climax of God's work and God's reform and reformation happening and revival coming. So that's what happens for Asa in chapter 15. He's been king for 15 years. He made early changes, good changes. But after 15 years, at the climax of this process, he leads the people in covenant renewal. It's the same with Hezekiah, 2 Chronicles 29. He's been king for one year and he's brought in reforms and it culminates in covenant renewal. But other times, it happens at pivotal pivotal moments before there has been reform and revival breakout. So Joshua in chapter 24, there's not reformation and revival happening. It's a pivotal moment in their history. There's going to be a change of leadership they're going to be living in the land and, and a break from the, the previous generation of leaders. There's land still to be conquered. There's the, the pressure they'll face from peoples around them and idolatry. And so Joshua leads them in covenant renewal. Or Joash in Second Chronicles 23 at a pivotal moment. He's a young king, a boy king. And uh, Queen Adaliah has just been executed for her, her wicked rule. And the people are led at the start of his reign, at this pivotal moment, in renewing their commitment to God. And I think that's the general pattern. There's, there's those two things. And sometimes they're together. And sometimes one's there, but the other isn't. But it's, it happens as the climax of reform, led up to and built up to, or it happens at pivotal moments in the people's history. So it's a pattern of the Lord's people in the Bible, but it's more than just a pattern and an example. A pattern and an example in the Bible would be enough for us. It's an indirect command of God if, if it's there as a positive example in the Bible, but more than an example and a pattern. It's a duty commanded of us. So Deuteronomy ten twenty, You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him And by his name you shall swear. There's a a call to commitment that is sworn. That is an oath. That is a promised commitment. You shall do this. A command. And the Psalms are full of commands in response to God's grace. To make and pay our vows to the Lord. It's commanded. It's also promised in the gospel by the prophets. So Isaiah 19.18. We looked at... On Sabbath night, 
about even Egypt and Assyria coming and paying their vows and joining themselves by oath to the Lord. Solemn, covenanted commitment in response to God's grace. And Isaiah says, this will happen in the future. The nations will covenant themselves to God. Another verse for you to take away and look up. Jeremiah 50, verse 5. five the gospel age. The nations of the world covenanting, binding themselves to God in response to his salvation. And unsurprisingly, we see it in history. Scotland, in the period we're familiar with. Uganda, in 2000, covenanted itself as a nation to God. And I'm sure there are other examples as well. So it's a pattern in the Bible, and just as an aside, though obviously it's not just an aside, it's something that's commanded, and there's a promise attached to it. It's the fulfillment of the prophets. But it's also a pattern in our history. So 1638-1643, our nation, nations entered into covenant with God. And not simply as a church, but the entire nation. The National Covenant, 1638, and the Solemn League and Covenant, 1643, when the three nations of England, Scotland and Ireland covenanted together and covenanted themselves to God. That was led by the leaders of the nation. Those covenants were adopted by the governments, by the parliaments. These were national events. It's estimated that in Scotland, I think with the National Covenant, the earlier one, two million people signed the covenant. Two million people. Committing themselves to the headship of Christ over the nation and over the church and working that out in national life. 1690, King Billy and all that is celebrated, but actually in many ways and in the most important way as a dark moment in the history of these islands because it was the time when we fully and, and decisively, up to now anyway, turned our back on those covenants that had been signed. Uh, it, it was a denial of the lordship of Jesus Christ over church and state. It was an explicit rejection of that. But our spiritual forefathers held to it, and hence our name, the Covenanters. And that was our distinctive witness through the generations. And so in 1712, 1745, 1853, 1901, 1911, and 1990, as a denomination, as a branch of the Church of Jesus Christ, we renewed our covenant response to God. We renewed our commitment to Christ as king and head of the church and the nation. And I'm sure many of you have either seen or perhaps signed the 1990 covenant document that you'll see on some of the walls of our church buildings. And each time what has been happening is it's a taking of the gospel and applying it to our time and our place and our circumstances. And so each time the specific sins confessed change, the sins of the nation and the sins of the church Not because sin changes, but because the expression of it changes in time and culture. And each age, each society has its own besetting sins. So the the sins confessed change and the commitments required change. Not because the, the demands of the Christian life change, but the way they're worked out change with time and place. So covenant renewal is the gospel expressed In our time, in our place, and in our context. It's the gospel expressed 
to our time and our place and our context. It's the gospel taken and applied to our society, to our time and our place. And so in 2022, we come to covenant renewal. It follows the biblical pattern, two parts. The confession of the sins of our generation. So if you look at 1990 and the paragraph that's confessing the sins of the nation, you'll see it talks particularly about materialism. And now it talks about secularism. It's not just that we're pursuing the things of the world. We've explicitly taken God out of it. The commitment to obedience is expressed differently, particularly in the areas of the sanctity of life, Sabbath keeping, and the other 21st, challenge, 21st century challenges we face. So the document is our public corporate commitment to Christ. And so as we, as we close, I, I hope you see that covenanting is a means of grace, a means of God sending blessing to us. A little bit like fasting. Jesus said, when you fast, he didn't say if you fast. Now, we don't say it's absolutely essential for the Christian life. But something that's good and healthy and should be part of the Christian life. And covenanting's on a similar level to that. It's one of the ways that Christ blesses his church. It's one of the ways to receive rest and rejoicing. Like the people of Israel did in King Asa's day. And that's why it's so important and so valuable. And the people of the past thought it important and valuable. You'll know that... The National Covenant and the Solemn League and Covenant were signed by many in blood. This was the strength of their commitment to it. Signed in blood. And they sealed that commitment to it with suffering. 18,000 suffered from 1660 to 1690. And many of them shed the blood that they signed the covenant in. It wasn't an empty promise they made when they signed it in blood. They died for Christ's crown and covenant so let's finish with the story of one of them, James Guthrie, and see how important it was to James Guthrie. He was a Scottish minister in Stirling in the 1650s. And he believed these covenants were important, even though they brought trouble and suffering into him. And a friend tried to get Guthrie to compromise. He said, would you not duck a bit that the wave would go over you? Duck a wee bit, compromise a little bit, and the wave of suffering will pass you by. You'll miss the full force of the persecution. And Guthrie responded, there's no ducking in the kingdom of Christ. His commitments to the covenants was at that time viewed as treason. He would not duck. And so he was sentenced to be hung. So here's two quotes from him in his last days that give you a sense of how important he thought they were. How valuable he thought covenanting covenant response to God and making these vows and holding these vows how important he thought it was his last words to his five year old son there will come a day William where they will cast shame upon you because your father was hanged be not ashamed lad it's in a good cause it's in a good cause his final words to his son as he stood upon the gallows he said this, he'd been offered a position as 
a bishop. That was one of the ways they tried to entice him to, to compromise, to bring him into the, 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 the state system of church government, of church control. He'd been offered a bishop and all the privileges that came with being a bishop. And here he, his last word in testimony. I take God to record upon my soul. I would not exchange this scaffold with the palace of the greatest bishop in Britain. His final cry, the covenants, the covenants, they shall yet be Scotland's reviving. That's how valuable and important they were to him. And the good that he believed that they would do to the land of Scotland. He knew that being in covenant with God and responding publicly and corporately in covenant to God was worth it. That Christ was worth binding himself to, even to death. And he knew that solemn commitment to Christ brings blessing for the path to rest and rejoicing. The covenants to covenants, they shall yet be Scotland's reviving. So it's our prayer that covenant renewal would be so for us, our congregation, our church, our time, our place, our culture, our nation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your covenant of grace with us. Save not by our own merit, but by the merit of the Lord Jesus. We thank you that we have a great saviour and a great king who is worth committing to, committing ourselves to in the strongest possible form, even to the point of death. And Lord, we pray that we as a, that as we as a congregation and as we as a church enter into covenant renewal, that it would be our reviving. Are reviving as individuals, are reviving as a congregation, are reviving as a denomination, are reviving as a land. Not because covenanting automatically brings blessing, but it's the way that you send your blessing. The Lord may it be so. We, we look to you humbly. We're aware of our sinfulness and our unworthiness. And we long to be fully committed to you. And so we look to you and ask that you would uphold and honour Christ's crown. Christ's covenants. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Right, I've had my say. It's time for some questions. and I just, I've got one question to begin with. Somebody sent it in, so I'll begin with answering that. Um, fire out questions if you have them um, it's it's all fair game I don't want you to have reservations and concerns about this so the first the question that was sent through to me in advance it's an excellent question because it's built on what I was saying at the start that our covenant response covenant renewal is built on God's covenant of grace with us, the, the, his gospel, his, his good news. 
Um, it's a response to him and to all that he has done. So the question is along the lines of us, it's, there's no mention of that really in the covenant document itself, the covenant commitment. Um, so maybe it's just assumed that we're responding to God and what he's done for us, but it does seem to jump right into acknowledging our sin. So is it not God's work in us that highlights our sin and we need to start with God first? That's an excellent question. And it was sort of the, the direction I was going to go tonight in, in changing up that address or that sermon. Um, because I think it's something that hasn't really covered uh, adequately up to now. Um, so it's a good place to start the quest, the, the, uh, any questions that we have. So the covenant document doesn't acknowledge a lot at the, at the beginning uh, of, of, of the, the gospel and what God has done for us. I think there's several reasons for that. One, and the least important reason, is practicality. Um, you know, how long would the document be if we had to restate all the truths that we believe? We've already given our testimony to the gospel we believe. It's in our subordinate standards, the confession of faith, the catechisms, our testimony. Um, so it's all stated there, but that, that's the least important reason. Um, that's just by the by almost. More importantly is that Covenant renewal happens in the context of worship. So we've got a copy of the order of service. This is, this is the order of service from Synod. And um, my intention is that ours will be very similar. So it takes place in the context of a worship service. The same way that an ordination takes place in a worship of service, <laughs> service of worship. Uh, and the sacraments take place in a service of worship, preceded by what? The preaching of the gospel. And just as you couldn't have the administration of the sacraments without the preaching of the gospel, you can't have covenant renewal without the preaching the proclamation, the statement of the gospel. So that's where the, 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 the God's covenant with us is emphasised and that's what the preaching of the gospel always does. And it always there not to, to call us to covenant response. So what happens in a service of covenant renewal, there's opening worship, Psalm 50 in this case, prayer, scripture reading, another psalm, and then a sermon, the preaching of the gospel. At Synod, there was a period of corporate prayer, and then singing of a psalm, reading of the covenant, the signing of the covenant, followed by a psalm, a prayer, and then an exhortation or challenge. Very similar to like a, an ordination. Uh, you've got the preaching of the word. You have the, the act of ordaining. And then you have a specific call or, or charge. Like the sacrament as well. Preaching of the word. You have the, the act, the, the, the sacrament itself, and then a, a further word. Not so much a charge, but a, in the Lord's Supper, but a, in baptism it is. It's a charge to parents. In the Lord's Supper, the focus is more on, here's what you've received, go, go and enjoy. Here's what you've experienced. But it's the same idea. It's a pressing home of the truths that have, first of all, been proclaimed and then pictured. So that, that's where the gospel comes in. Um, 
So I don't know if that answers the question adequately. I'm not going to embarrass the person if they don't want to own up to it. But, but one other thing to, 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 to highlight this, that because of all that I've just said, this is why we've chosen to do it as our communion thanksgiving service. So the focus will be on the coming to the Lord's table and what God has done for us. And then as we come to thank God for that, what are we going to do? We're going to enter into covenant with him. And look at the, the, the words of Psalm 116. What will I to the Lord repay for these his blessings all? Salvation's cup I will lift up. And in the Lord's name call, I will take the sacrament. Or the picture of, this, of, of what God has done. The vows which to the Lord I made, I will certainly pay. So I think there's something particularly fitting and appropriate about covenant renewal as an act of communion, thanksgiving. It's our response to God's grace pictured in the sacrament and proclaimed in the preaching of the word. So any thoughts, comments, feedback, disagreement on that um, or any further questions? Between, so for anybody listening at home, the question is why was it not done before? Remind me to do that any time a question is asked for the benefit of those at home because uh, I'm the one in front of the microphone. So between 1990 and 19, uh, no, 2022, um, I suppose I can't give a definite reason, but it's, it, it's not something that we do constantly. I th- it arises and it should arise from, as we see in the Bible, either a spell of revival and reformation or particular points of crisis or significance and, and moment. But, and this is another important point uh, to, to be made, uh, it's good that uh, you, you raised it. Each time we come to the Lord's table, we're renewing our covenant. And there's a sense that those who signed the covenant in 1990, who took the covenant in 1990, as they come to the Lord's table, they're renewing that, just as we renew our membership vows, just as we renew our fundamental, basic uh, profession of faith in the Lord Jesus. So, And I think that's really important. You know, coven, covenant response, covenanting kind of sits alongside the Lord's Supper and there's an extension of that. Do you, do you understand what I, what I mean? Um, there, there is, of course, the, the, the danger that you could just think, well, this is a cure for all the world's ills and we'll do it, um, we'll do it as much as we can. You know, it's the, it's the joke in Father Ted or the, the priests say, you know, well, is there something to be said for another Mass? You know, we could, as RPs, we could be saying, well, there's something to be said for another covenant renewal. Um, so I think there's, it's, it's got to be led to or arise from something. Uh, and I've been this up tonight, why I think we've come to, to this point now. Um, but a, another good question.
Bible is done at the national level. Yeah. Scotland as well. Mm-hmm. Good question. That's a good question. So the question is, the examples in the Bible are a national covenant, the, the, the Scottish covenants, uh, are, well, the, the historic ones, the 1638, 1643, are, are national covenants. So, you know, what's our basis for doing it as a small denomination and a small part of the world with small influence? Uh, so I think there's two things in my mind about that. The first is... In the Old Testament, Israel are doing it as both church and state, and the, the two are combined. The two are no longer combined. Church and state are separate, so the leaders of the church are not the leaders of the state, and vice versa. There's a separation between church and state, and rightly so, that's, that's biblical. That's in God's plan of salvation. So I think our grounds then for doing it is that it can be done on either a national level or a church level. So when Scotland did it in 1638 and 43 and, and England and, and Ireland joined them in 1643, they're, they're following the national example. What were the other dates they gave? 1743 and 1919 and today we're following the church side of that. Um, so what influence uh, can we hope to have? Well, one of our great grievances and our point of contention since 1690 onwards is that the nation has rejected its covenants and then is in, in, is in a position of covenant rejection and breaking still. And our advice to the to the government is return to your covenant obligations to God. And in a sense, even just to, to focus in on that a wee bit, it, it's not just calling the nation to, to its covenant obligations for the sake of the covenant obligations. It's, it's, it's what the covenants are an expression of. Awareness of sin before Christ and, and commitment to obedience. It's, it's sort of looking through the covenants to here's the king that, that you... Um, that you serve. I'm just looking, looking around for my copy of uh, the covenant because I think that the wording at the top is is, is really good. You know, an, an acknowledgement of our sins. Um, we desire to humble ourselves before God on account of the sins of the nations in which we live. And here's the f- bottom line: the mediatorial kingship of Christ over the nations is not acknowledged and the law of God is rejected in national life. There's the fundamental sin and we call the nation to, to turn from it. Now, we are a small voice, but we're also not the only ones calling the nation to turn back to God, are we? We're, you know, Lots of God's people are, are, are thankfully doing that and, and praying for that as well. We're just reminding the, 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 the nation of a particular perspective and a solemn binding 
agreement that they took upon themselves and they can't just ditch because they don't feel like it anymore. But we're all still calling for the same thing, a return to the Lordship of Christ over the nation. What influence can we hope to have? Um, in some ways, none, because we're so small, and in other ways, a great deal of influence, because when Christ's people honour him and are faithful to him, he takes that and he adds an exponential blessing. The parable of the sower, uh, the good soil that hears the word of God and responds to it in the right way, bears uh, a harvest 30, 60, 100 fold. And, and, and the, the, the farming of, of Jesus' day, like a tenfold harvest was incredible. And Jesus said, I said, no, faithfulness to my word will bring a super abundant harvest. So although we're small, that's our hope as well. Um, I suppose then there's the angle that if this is a, a duty required uh, on, of us from God, an example that he gives of his people doing it that we're to follow and attaches promises to it, um, it's the right thing for us to do regardless of how much impact we, we think it may or may not have. It's parallel, isn't it, to the preaching of the gospel? You know, what, what, what does my little voice, our little voice, do in the, in the great big world? Well, we could look at it humanly and say very little, or we, could, we can walk in faith and, think, well, and say, well, this is what Christ has called us to do, and we'll do it faithfully, and we'll look for an exponential harvest and blessing. And yet in saying that, I, th- I think it's really important to kind of keep coven- covenant renewal in that line of sacraments and the preaching of God's word. You know, it's all in the same family. It's all in the same thing. So it's not that covenant renewal is necessarily the magic pill that we just need to do and the whole nation will be put to rights. It's all part of the one package and yet it's an expression of, of our sense of sin, how deeply we feel it, and our depth of commitment to the Lord Jesus. And to draw a parallel with fasting, um, John Piper's phrase about fasting is, you know, it's not a, a, a magic dust you sprinkle on your prayers. So, okay, well, I've, I've prayed and fasted this time, so God will definitely give it to us. It's an exclamation mark in the end of our prayers. We're saying to God, this is how much it means to us. And covenant renewal is saying to God, this is how much we, we, we feel sorry for our sins, and this is how much you mean to us that we're going to bind ourselves to you as, as tight as we, as we can. And in the history of, of the church, God has taken very little and used it to bring great blessing. Um, more often than not, it's the preaching of the word that he's taken very little of and used it to great blessing, but it's, that's his, his way of working. If it wasn't his way of working, taking, taking little and making much of it, we should just all pack up and go home because we are little, aren't we? Um, and we don't have much in ourselves. Any thoughts or comments or kickback? You know, you don't genuinely happy for us to discuss this. And and Emmeline's poised with a question. Don't forget it. But I'm just going to say, again, there's no natural slot to to fit this in, but it's important to be said. The the, the signing of the covenant when we come to the 13th of November, it is voluntary. It will not be any forcing. Um, but why? Since King Asa said, if anybody does not seek the Lord, to be put to death. Well, that's because church and state were one. 
So state had a duty to enforce that with the literal sword. We don't have the literal sword. Our sword is... I've misplaced my sword. There. There's my sword. It's the word. Um, so it's a, it's a, it is a voluntary thing. Nobody will be um, no, disciplined for not signing, uh, making the vow. Nobody, you know, and if, if people don't have peace about it, aren't settled to it, um, that, that's, that's okay. You're not going to be press ganged and bullied into it. Emily, you remember your question? It starts with Our covenant, yes. yeah. Though it is, it is a church covenant. We're not, we're, we're not signing this on behalf of the nation. We can't. Yes. Yeah. What I wondered is, yep. is it sent to Stormont to tell them that we signed this covenant, or is it just that we sign the covenant and we, on behalf of the nation, are saying that which nation should be doing a better job? I uh, will see. I, I want to be careful with that turn of phrase. So just to repeat the question for anybody at home. Um, would it be? We're signing it. We're confessing the sins of the nation. Are we? Should we send it to Stormont since we're doing this on their behalf? Um, do you see why the turn of phrase is important? We're not. We're calling them yes, out no. for sin, but we're not signing it on their behalf. We can't. I have no authority to bind no, the nation. Meant, yeah. Sorry, Hi. As Hi. members of the nation, yeah. we're signing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And 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 that's the sense of it. It's a public witness. Yeah. We're saying. We're, we're, and I, I, I like the idea. Well, that's what I'm asking. Is yeah. it a public witness? Yeah. Are we telling yeah. people we're doing it? Or is it a, we're doing this as a church, but nobody really knows what's happening? Yeah, so yeah. Well, I, I think because it's a covenant, it's a church covenant, it's not a national covenant, it's us responding to God. It doesn't necessarily need sent, but I actually think that would be you know, a good thing to be, to, to be making the nation aware of. And our leaders aware of? Well, they know we meet every Saturday yeah. to worship. You know about that. Yeah, I, I, I'm. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's not like we we do it every Lord's Day. We let them know, but it, it's. It, this again, though, is a is a kind of a, an, an additional extra yeah. part of the means of grace or our public witness. So I wouldn't be against sending it uh, to them and. and Pointing out to them, I say you have a covenant commitment that you're bound well, by. Sure yeah, of it. yeah. it's not. I suppose. Now, is it part of it or not? I suppose what I'm trying to articulate is, I I don't think it's in an an essential intrinsic part of this, but it wouldn't, you know, it would be it would be a logical and a good outflow and outcome from it. Um, but in in the, in the sense that again, you know, we we write to them quite a bit, and what, what does it, what does it achieve? You know, we're not we're not going to. This is significant, and yet we have to acknowledge our seeming insignificance. But that doesn't mean we should be despondent because God uses the weak and insignificant of the world um, to, to to bring about to, to humble the, the proud. Um, I I think. I, 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 I really like the, the, the balance in, in the confession of sin part. Um, my concern as we've gone through it is that it sounds like we're shouting about what's happening out there when we're to take the speck uh, out of our, no, the plank, out of our own eye before the speck out of the national and the wider church's eye. But I, th- I rather think of it in terms of 
we're dealing out there first, and then we're coming closer to home, and then you know we're, we're focusing in, and we're in sin too, we're in error too, and we confess this before God. We're not just shouting about problems out there. We acknowledge that we have not been the people of God that we that we have been called to be and ought to be. Um, and I, th- I think that's a really nice uh, balance and, and way to go about it. These are all great questions. These are all really great questions, everyone. So the question for Annabeth Homer is, is something we see in the Old Testament. And you know, that's where my proof texts have, uh, have come from. So what warrant do we have for doing it? Uh, or, or do we see it in the New Testament? Um, where do our proof texts, the clearest examples of baptizing, of giving the covenant sign to infants come from? The Old Testament. We can't point to a clear example in the New Testament or a clear command in the New Testament of a covenant, the covenant sign being given to a child. Um, does that invalidate our practice? Well, the Baptists would say yes. We say no because we see continuity between the Old and New Testament. Um, what we would say is there's no... Uh, removal of the command and the duty to covenant in the New Testament. I think the promises are really those prophetic promises, pictures of the new age of the last days, the nations coming, and not just coming to Christ, but covenanting themselves, entering into oaths and vows to the Lord are really significant. I think you see it in the New Testament, not on a church level, but on a personal level. The response to the gospel is framed as, as a covenanted response, we respond in repentance and faith. We take up the cup of the new covenant in His blood. Um, I think then, I think there's 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 hints and allusions to it. Like I said, the the, the letters in Revelation um, have a covenantal structure, covenantal shadow that I haven't the information at hand to, to pull out now, but you know, other people look at that and say there's, you know, the, the structure and form of covenant is there not just in the letters of Revelation, but the, the form of the whole book. It actually well, this is the bit I do remember, the whole book actually reads a bit like Deuteronomy um, God speaking and uh the, the, the people addressed historic situation addressed the letters to the churches and then covenant conditions set out here's what happens with disobedience here's what happens with faithfulness so those who overcome they'll conquer um, now that's not I can't jump in and then say okay, Revelation proves that we should as a church be, be covenant makers but it's not totally absent from the New Testament but even if it was uh I don't see that as a problem because 
in a sense, infant baptism is absent from the New Testament. It's interesting, I mentioned John Piper um, and Bethlehem Baptist, his church in Minneapolis, uh, renewing, entering into covenant with God in 1993, and he preached from Nehemiah. I think, okay, that's interesting. So you're going back to the Old Testament to a practice and bringing it into your church life, a practice for which there's, strictly speaking, no New Testament warrant. You're okay with that? Well, what about the sign of the covenant? <laughs> you see the, I think, inconsistency? But I'm glad that Bethlehem Baptist <laughs> covenanted with God. Does that help? Does that, or you disagree with that? Or is that... I thought we talked about the examples of Baptist the whole household. Yeah, but, well, we do. But also we can't categorically prove that there were children there. Um... So I think I would be saying something similar that, that, that you know, the church, when, when Paul talks about like the form of sound words and things, there's and, and other places there's sort of a, a, an echo of here's a creed that exists that people are holding to and that there's a public acknowledgement of. Now that that take the form of covenanting, I think you're probably beginning to push it too far. But you see, it's, there's, it's not totally absent. It's not totally alien. The New Testament seems to have ideas of, of well, obviously, there's an idea of public commitment to Christ um, and the, uh, I forget the other part I was going to say of that. Um, but I suppose, yeah, the foremost act of covenant renewal in the New Testament is the Lord's Supper, which is both individual and corporate. Um, but I wouldn't want to ditch something that I think has a clear command, repeated example, and gospel age promise in the Old Testament, just because it's not explicitly stated in the New Testament. There's quite a lot, actually, of church practice that is not explicitly stated in the New Testament. But it's a great question. It's one, one of the guys asked it at the Young Adults Weekend. I thought, hmm. I need to do some thinking on that. So when you're speaking about it this weekend for the young folk, mm-hmm. who signs the government? Good question. Um, I can give an authoritative answer to that after our session meeting next week. <laughs> It's a good question. It's a really good question. So the question for anybody at home is, who signs the covenant? Um, I'm speaking to the, 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 the CY weekend about it. Um, if you can picture some of the 1990 documents in our churches, there are some where children have signed it, and there are uh, some where children haven't signed it. I had never picked up on that until Professor McCollum at Synod talked about it. And he said that, um, not a direct quote, but in effect, you can, you can kind of make a case for, for either that would be justifiable and you could stand over. So, uh, you know, you look at some of the examples in the Bible of covenant, of, of covenant renewal and it's quite clear, you know, it's, it's, it's all that are there. Um, is it even Second Chronicles 15, young and old? Or maybe that's the curse for not seeking God. 
Um, but Joshua, you know, the, uh, I think is it the Nehemiah example. Everybody's there and it's noted the children do it. Um, I think for me it's significant though that the, the parallel to church membership and thinking of it as an extension to church membership, it's a public profession of, public confession of sin and profession of faith and obedience. Um, it's an extension of our membership vows which covenant children don't take. And covenant children, they are in the covenant but not in the same way that a professing believer is. You know, the promises are to them and for them, but they have to repent and believe themselves. And then that is expressed in their public testimony, their, their coming their profession of faith, which comes about in the terms of membership when they join. Uh, so I'm arguing both sides. <laughs> and the session are weighing it up. I think what I would want to do at the very least, say we decide that, okay, we members sign it. Um, I think I would want an acknowledgement that the children are outwardly in the, see this, children are yeah, present, but they're also, they're in the covenant outwardly. They have the covenant sign. They have the covenant blessings. We don't know yet whether they're in the covenant inwardly until they profess faith and do it publicly before the elders of the church and join the church and make that public individual commitment to Christ. But they are in the covenant. I think I would like them. I think you can make a case for them signing it you know, with a, in, a, in another category. I heard of one church who they signed like a different copy of it. Um, some place I think they're signing at the back, some place they aren't signing it. Um, I think I would like the kids that want to sign it to sign it. And I'm speaking personally, this will be an elder's decision in time. And I think, I think I'd be happy with either one. I see a case either way. Um, or something else that was important in, in that. Uh, yeah, it, I think it's a little bit parallel to making out a call where members sign it as members and adherents sign it as adherents and covenant children sign it as covenant children. And what's expected and required then varies with each category. Willing to take other thoughts on it. I'm just, I'm thinking out loud as I, as I talk in this aspect. I, I, I'm uncomfortable with children not signing at all because I think it sort of contradicts what we're saying about baptism for our children. We're saying that they are in the covenant, in a sense. And we're saying, but you, okay, but you're going to sit totally apart for this. And yet, that's... That, sorry? If, it's, if the whole point is we're coming to worship when we're saying we bring our families to worship as a family unit, and that would sort of follow that you would sign the government as a family? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, well, I think, too, I would want to say that certainly when the head of the house signs it, he's signing it on behalf, as covenant head of the house, he's signing it on behalf of his children. And that's very clear, isn't it? You know, Joshua, as for me and my household... That's in, the covenant, that's in covenant renewal. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. So whether my children actually sign it or not, I'm signing it as head of the household and they're bound then as covenant children to the degree that covenant children are. Um, I think that part of the parallel is we don't, they don't take the Lord's Supper until there's public profession of faith and commitment. So if we're saying it's like an extension of that, I'm sure I'm confusing you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Um, so, but I, I suppose the fruit of that is I'm probably happy whatever we as a session decide. Um, but I'm also, you know, if, I, would, I would welcome your thoughts on it. You know, if, if as a congregation you're thinking, it would look really cold and weird that the kids are not signing at all. Okay, well, I would not saying that would make up our mind, but I would, I would hear that. I would take that into account. Sorry? I I but not everybody did. I don't think I signed Trinity's. No, I, I know Pete So that was news to me. I because I, I associate children's signatures with it. It was all very neat and then you get big kids yeah, scrolls. <laughs> um but when Prof Robert stood up and said that, I thought, okay, right. I hadn't thought of that. I hadn't noticed that and I see See the point. He just said, "Look, it's something for sessions to think about and come to their own decision on." This sounds wrong. You're doing a lot of pushing of it and teaching on it mm-hmm. and explaining of it to then have particularly older young people and say, "Well, you don't need to sign it, even though I've preached multiple sermons on why we shouldn't sign it, why it's beneficial to you to sign this, but we don't need you to sign it." Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's. So I do understand the difference between members and all, but. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I would be wanting then to say something. What I say, you know, quite often, that communion. You know, you're not taking part physically, outwardly, but you can do it inwardly. You can make this commitment to God, and that that's that's a really important distinction in church life: the difference between the outward and inward. I can't know your hearts. I can evaluate the evidences of faith and decide whether there's a, cons- a life consistent with your profession, but I can't truly know your hearts. If you profess faith, and it's a consistent Christian profession, I have to welcome you into church membership. I can only judge on the outward appearances. And so that outward-inward distinction is really important for church life and you know, in, in communion. What are we saying to the kids? Well, you can't, okay, you can't take the element, but you can take the, 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 the most important thing is Christ. And he is offered to you, and you can take him in the most important way. So even if we don't let you sign the covenant, you can. The most important thing is to confess your sins deeply, and to hold tight your commitment deeply. You can do that whether your ink's whether there's wet ink or not. And that's maybe that's maybe helpful as well to think of it in terms of um, people who aren't sure about signing it. Okay, we don't have to put your name down, but you know, the essence of it, the inner reality is a, is a confession of sin and a commitment to obedience in this. And, and that's, you know, the, the signing, uh, the actual mode of, of expressing it publicly varies in the Bible. And well, there's not much said about it in the Bible, and it varies in history. You know, how do we, how do we take our, our baptismal vows account? We raise our hand. Um, we could do that, I think. In this context, signing a document, it's significant, it's important, it's historic, it's there for all to see, it's a, it's a public record. Uh, I think that's why we sign it and not just raise our hands to it. But either case, the important thing is the heart reality. You know, you could raise your hand, you could sign it, but if there's no commitment, it's, it's false and it's a sin before God. So the inner reality is far more important, as is always the case in the Christian life. And I think that that comes across, maybe not at first reading, but it comes across in the covenant document. I was going to, I meant to say this earlier. We maybe doesn't explicitly begin with the gospel, but it's 
Hopefully in the worship service that will come out uh, because it follows the preaching of the gospel. But you know, it acknowledges our need for grace. Uh, before the commitments, we acknowledge our proneness to failure and our ongoing need for forgiving and equipping grace. And we pray that the Holy Spirit would enable us to keep our covenant vows. Um, that's, the, that's the really important thing. We, we need God's grace to do this. Um, actually signing the document won't, won't make a button of difference unless there's grace given and grace uh, lived out and, and experienced. Any other questions that you want to ask publicly? This is not the end of your questioning. Feel free to come back and pick up on things. Okay. We'll leave it there for tonight. And uh, as I said, I, I that this is not... I'm not considering this to be the final word that you should all have all your, your questions answered and um, you know, take go away and think about these things come back to me um, query things challenge them that's, that's healthy and that's, that's good let's finish with prayer Father we acknowledge that covenanting is not uh, a magic formula that will solve all of our ills as individuals or church or as a nation. And yet, it's the right thing to do and we engage in it in sincerity. And all of our actions are stained by sin and in one sense doomed to failure because of our weakness. We thank you for your grace, your grace which enables us to put sin to death and to grow more and more obedient. Your grace that enables us to live more and more Christ-like lives. And so as we, as we think about this and, and look at covenant renewal and, and just look at the, whether we, we sign the document or not, the, the, the journey ahead of us as believers, we pray for grace. We pray for grace. And we thank you that you send it in so many ways. You're so quick to be gracious to your people. In the preaching of your word, week in, week out, to a steady regularity and an unseen good in the sacraments, in prayer, and in these secondary matters, like covenanting. And so we pray that as we and our brothers and sisters in the denomination covenant with you and with each other, that it would be a blessing to us. Uh, and just as it has been in the past, may it be a blessing, uh, a further step forward for our holiness as individuals, our holiness as a church, our peace as a church, our witness as a church, and our nation, which is running so hard away from you. We pray that you would take our small act of repentant, believing, commitment and that you would send exponential growth and blessing that, that, that 
ripples out from us to the nation. We're in such a dark place as a nation at the minute. Lord, we pray that the covenants, that the Christ of the covenant, his grace, his power in the Holy Spirit would yet be Scotland, England and Ireland's reviving. Maybe our reviving. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.